format here. Are you both talking to me? Are yes. we going to have a little yes. conversation? That's great. Yeah, we, we, have, we have a bunch of questions that we wanted to ask you. I mean, sometimes we like get... history we, questions? Yes, history we're going to do So yeah. um, how far, well, and science, too. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't remember. That's a good answer. How far is the moon answer. from the Earth? 250,000 miles. Very good. How about the sun? I have no idea. Well, uh, well let's take a quick guess. I know that one. 20 million? 93, 93 million. Wow. And wealthy, wealthy people <laughs> yeah. in the United States make a lot more than $93 million. Oh, my God. People make so much I have a friend. I just bumped into his wife and at, a, at a function. I'm, I'm so out of this world, but I moved back to New York in May, and now I'm trying to raise more money for microwave and right. stuff. So I'm reconnecting. I grew up here. So I'm reconnecting with all my friends, and a lot of them have become billionaires, literally. Wow. And Wait, bi- with a B? B, 1.5 oh, this one. I would be happy if I just had $100,000 once. People who have that kind of money, they're making like $100,000 a day. I'm working on a spiritual path, actually. This is my main thing, besides right. doing microwave. And I really believe that, you know, there's something more than just being on this planet and to make yourself more comfortable. More and more and more comfortable. Right, right. Making right. more and more money. Right. For what? So yeah. you can have a fancier car or a bigger house or multiple houses right. or a fancier bed. I just don't get it, you know. And thank goodness I don't get it. I was working in Burma, and in Burma you get a 30-day visa. You have to leave the country to get a new one. People who want to spend more time there just pop over to, pop over to uh, Thailand, which uh-huh. is a little teeny commuter flight, and you just mm-hmm. stay overnight. You go to the embassy, the, Thai, uh, the Burmese embassy, and you get your new visa. I was coming back, and this girl with me, the Burmese stopped her. They were like, uh, no, we have a note here that says you're not allowed back in the country. For, we, don't, we don't even know what reason. Oh, and she wow. was turned around. She was like, Whatever the next plane is. Wow. What did she do? Well, it's Burma. We don't know. We don't know. Hmm. Is that what they say? In Burma, we just don't know? <laughs> that would be a good slogan yeah. for their license plates. All right. In if Burma, we don't know. <laughs> and we are Bar Crawl Radio. Uh, we're podcasters and believe that the best conversation happen at your neighborhood bar. And I'm Alan Winson. And I'm Rebecca McCain. And here we go. We like this music. You like it too. I said I Here like we go. it. Here we go. We Okay. That so. was Eastern Blockheads. Eastern Blockheads. Headed up by Wade Ripka. Wade Ripka. His, his other band, he has uh, several different styles he plays, but he has this thing called Greek Judas Band, uh, and they play a wild form of Greek rabetica, and we've had Wade on the show. You can catch the Wade Ripica sounds of, uh, of uh, Greek Judas at Barbez in Brooklyn. And, and recently, Eastern Blockheads, too. Yeah, and that, too. And he has another band. He plays like, uh, I know, right? like uh, Rascals songs He's amazing. from the 30s. And recently, they've been performing at Niagara at 112 Avenue A. So you can catch them there. So we want to remind our listeners that BCR posts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. A new episode every Friday. And we are getting a social media manager, Jeannie Sarawatsky. Wait, that's not right. Well, Jeannie Media. Jeannie Media. Yeah. Jeannie Media Sarawati. Sarawati. She's a sweet lady from Australia. She's from Australia. Yeah. So our posting places will be expanding. Right. Today we are recording at Vino Laventino on West 94th Street, just west of Broadway. 
this is where we started. Yeah, we started. Not, we, we're at the bar now, but we started at the window. Yes. Well, it was the summertime, so right. it was open. It was open, yeah. and people were walking by, and it was very cool. Of, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again this summer. Yes. When it gets when it gets warm Absolutely. again. Absolutely, if Chaim will have us. Right. We had we had Helen Rosenthal on, and yes, that's uh, right. Right. And Karen, Karen Palazzo from Palazzo, Hudson Warehouse. Palazzo, the actress. Yeah, they're, they're doing Pride and Prejudice right now. Right, I know you saw it. Over at the St. Paul and St. Andrew United Methodist Church. Um, and they were, they're very good. There's a, there's a theater over there. Right. I, I never knew it. Me neither. Yeah. And I just want to announce uh, real quickly, the Hudson Warehouse uh, summer uh, um, schedule is they're going to play Merry Wives of Windsor, uh, Man in the Iron Mask, which is the third of their... D'Artagnan uh, right, series, right. the Three Musketeers series. We've seen series. the first two. And Antony and Cleopatra. Right. So that's their season this summer. I hope they, yeah. I and hopefully they'll be at the, um, at the Soldier and Sailors Monument on 93rd Street, right right in Riverside Park. I mean, 90th Street. Yeah, it's more 89, like 91st, 90th, right, yeah. Riverside 91st. Park. Yeah. So today... You can't miss it, though. Today... <laughs> it's a big monument. <laughs> big monument, right, the Soldier and Sailors Monument, which might be falling down. That's the problem there. It's not there. falling down. Today we have with us uh, John Ross, and he's the head of the and the the head of and the main toiler in the fields for MicroAid International. Uh, this is a nonprofit that more need to know about, and we are hoping that our listeners will get to know a lot more about MicroAid International. They go into third world disaster areas, and after the big boys have gone, after the NGOs have left, government agencies have left. News media is not interested anymore. They've left. And uh, John Ross uh, and, and, and his uh, group go in and help rebuild homes and the economy using local resources. John, welcome. Thank you very yes. much. Yeah, we nice to, to be here. All right, to, I think uh, we have to do a toast. I have to do a toast. A yes. glass of wine That's in tradition. my hands. Very we happy go. to. We're drinking a Bordeaux. You're drinking a Bordeaux, right. and I'm drinking a Tito's Martini. Yeah. Because I had some bad news today. What's the bad news? <laughs> oh, I guess it's not that bad, really. Just that. Um, my ear is going to hurt on the airplane. That's it. Oh, yeah. You're going to yeah, visit your mom hurt. and yeah. you can take a long gotta flight. I have a problem with my ear. And and it's oh, it's going to hurt. And I begged for medication and I think I'm going to get some. All That's, right. That is bad news. And uh, these days, though, uh, luckily, um, the planes are, are better pressurized. And they're, they're not like when we were kids. Remember when you were younger? Oh, yes. And oh. your ears would just hurt? And oh, absolutely. And crazy things would go on. Your head felt like it was going to pop. Yeah. Exactly. Now, since I travel so much... The planes are uh, much better pressurized. And you well, do travel a lot. Good. Hopefully you won't. It's uh, good to know. Yeah, yeah. hopefully it won't be too I know so my ears are always popping in planes. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I know how to unpop them, but a kid doesn't. Yeah, yeah right. A kid doesn't. Yeah. 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 So, John, let's talk about MicroAid International. Okay. Uh, I thought we'd start with its basic philosophy, goals, you know, that, that, that sort of thing, uh, and, and where you make positive changes in the world. So I thought we'd start there, then we get into the nitty-gritty, find out a little about you. You go into disaster areas after, say, a, tsu a tsunami is hit, for instance, right? Yes. Uh, into a third world country, into rural areas. You're not in the city. That's what I'm, I'm getting. But you do so several years after the initial catastrophe. Yes. Is that right? I got that? You are. And that was a great summation at the top of the show um, about what microaid is. We go in after... Well, after the world has forgotten. And unfortunately, that doesn't really take too long these days because the news cycles are so short. Uh, Several minutes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there yeah. something happening, happening in um, uh, that, that South American country, uh, you know, the, the despotic leader? 
what was going on there? Is it over now? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. O- only 15 million people involved continuously. And that's what happens in disasters, too. I mean, you had Haiti, uh, which was maybe the, one of the first disasters that really had an international news presence in 2010. Big, big time. Big time. Yeah. I mean, the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 was a big deal, but it didn't get the kind of press, uh, bec- and I think it was because Haiti was in our hemisphere. It was sort of in the United States' back door. Yep. So or out our back door, and so you had a lot of press surrounding that. Nevertheless, over a million people were affected, and I can't even remember how many people died, but it was hundreds of thousands. And, you know, no one talks about that anymore, but that's an ongoing problem. That's, uh, those people haven't been helped. And part of the reason for that is that the, that was a city disaster. Uh, Port-au-Prince uh, was, a, was almost the epicenter of that earthquake, and millions of people's homes were destroyed. But they didn't own those homes, and they didn't own the land that they were on. Wow. So they were, yes, I mean, really, it's tragedy. So and they couldn't even claim the, the space. Exactly. They couldn't go back to something and rebuild. Um, the people who owned it either rebuilt or didn't, and those other people who had been living there or squatting there were in these refugee, refugee camps, which still exist. And, and how many years? Well, that was 2010, and now it's 2019. Nine years. We're talking a decade later. Yes. And that was a similar thing uh, uh, that I found when I started this organization, that that's that's not atypical, that the Indian Ocean tsunami happens, and there are some great organizations that do the emergency response. Of course, that's necessary digging people out of the rubble and uh, administering immediate medical attention. And then getting food in, getting food in, yeah. clearing the roads, uh, trying to reestablish infrastructure. Those are critical things. And, and there are some organizations that are really well suited and well funded to do that. Um, what I found is the next stage in a disaster response is that there's a relief phase. And I call those people the tent and water people. And I, I sort of chuckle when I say that, but they're really also uh, serving an amazingly important role. Right. They're getting people into some kind of shelter right away so that they can, if it's a, a cold or a hot climate, they can be out of those elements. And, and the shelter we're talking about is a tent. Yeah, it's usually a tent or a tarp even that they throw over the remnants of their old house. Yeah. Um, but there is a third uh, phase of a disaster response, and that is what is sorely overlooked. And it's the long-term disaster recovery, and it's getting people out of the temporary situations, out of the rubble of their homes, and back into permanent homes. The difficult, the different, the difficult part of that is that it's expensive to build permanent homes. It's so far after the disaster that people have forgotten so it's hard to raise money for it and it's unglamorous the photos in on my website for instance they look like construction zones they don't like the, they don't because look like th- that's what they are because that's what they are yeah. they don't look like disaster and that areas. shows that your comp- that your organization is making progress what does the construction oh absolutely we're building yes you're building <laughs> but it doesn't look it doesn't have the i, I hate to say this in, in, in it's not sexy it's not sexy and i don't right. i was going to say that but okay. i didn't want to say that in, no. in in relation to a disaster it's just not sexy and it's hard in, in relation yeah. to media that's what it is yes, yes. and it raising is, it funds is or isn't. getting and attention exactly right yeah. so and how many there must be so many places in this world that remain at that second or third level the the, the tenth city level 
and it just stays like that. Um, and that becomes almost the norm? Yeah, that's the problem, is that often the temporary uh, housing becomes permanent because the organizations that do that, they leave because that's not their mission isn't to do anything more than that. Their mission is relief and temporary housing. And the people who receive that aid, they don't have any other means to do anything more than that. They have no, you know, their old house was destroyed and they don't have any money because they're the poorest of the poor. And so they end up living in these temporary shelters, tents, tarps, whatever. Yeah. So, so your organization goes into these areas after the, the, the first waves of help. Second wave and third wave. Second yeah. wave and third wave, yeah. right? If there, are any, if there is any help at all. Okay. <laughs> and, you, and your organization helps to rebuild houses. You replace the tools needed to make, a, to make a living. You use local labor and local resources. So how did you come up with this solution? It wasn't brain science. I, I don't give myself too much credit because I went to disaster zones. I started researching uh, sort of the germ of microaid. I'll go back to that. Yeah. was that in 2005, uh, a large financial institution in New York, the head of it, um, he, they had lost the most people in 9-11. Mm. And I happen to know the chairman of that company. And he had a... He was taking his kid to school that morning and didn't die along with 600 and some odd 50 of his What employees. was his name? I think I know this story. Sure. It's Howard Lutnick from Cantor Fitzgerald. Yeah. And he contacted me. We, I've known him for quite a while, since, he, since, be, since before he was Howard Lutnick. <laughs> he was it's just Howard. He was just a guy. Yeah. And um, he wanted to help tsunami victims in the Indian Ocean. He had read about them, that in Sri Lanka they weren't being helped, and he wanted to do something really nice for them. And because it's a soft spot for people who have been, who've survived that kind of disaster. Right. Anyway, so uh, I started looking into, for him and the company, looking into how I could help uh, some, uh, uh, one village in Sri Lanka. And went down a long road, did all the research, ready to go, and unfortunately at the end of, end of the day, they, they decided not to do the project. But I always kept it in the back of my mind, and as I evolved in my life and, and through my career, in 2008, I said, you know what, I'm gonna go help them. I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna raise the money, I'm gonna go help these people, because I kept in touch with the people I had contacted, and they still needed help, Yeah. four years afterwards. Right. So that's how I chose Sri Lanka is my first project site. So you had a friend who said, you know, what about this? What can I do to help? You looked into it as a favor, as a... Yes. Because you have the, that ability and you and then you just couldn't let it go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a thing. And also, uh, it was part of my personal evolution. I had done a lot of different... I'd had a, a number of different careers in production and I also had volunteered a lot for Habitat for Humanity in Los Angeles on a weekly basis I'd, over many years. So I became what they call a rusty nail, uh -huh. which is their, some of their very, uh, usually they're retired people. They're older and they're retired. Right, right. And, uh, but, I, but I kept showing up on it weekly. And so with them, I, I built 33 houses in Los Angeles and got um, certified by them to be a crew leader and, and run a construction site from the ground up. 
So oh. that's where I learned my construction skills. I was going to say, you learned a lot there. That's yeah. not on your website. No. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, Is but it? it's not as mentioned as, as right. specifically. Because, I mean, I was wondering where, where, where you got the construction. Because you have yeah. a lot of other skills. And right. I, I, we do want to get to yeah. a little bit into your life before MicroAid okay. International. Sure. But I wanted to ask one more thing yeah. about this whole kind of uh, uh, philosophy that you have. Mm -hmm. um, you quote on your website Sidney Smith, yes. which I'd never heard of him before, but he said that big problems many times defeat us. Big problems. It's so big. It's such a huge problem that we say we can't do anything about it. It's like climate change. It's so big, so we don't do anything about it. Yeah. But he said small steps are important, yeah. and micro aid, micro aid, yes. it's in the name, yes. uh, is a small step. Um, so by working like one house at a time or with one canoe at a time, mm -hmm. how is that helping the community? How is that helping the larger structure? Well, it, it, it may not completely be helping a larger community. When we brought up the canoes, that actually did help the community. It was a okay. project that I did in Samoa after a tsunami wiped out the southern coast of that island of Upolu, which is the main island of Western Samoa in 2010 also. And I went there thinking that I was going to help them rebuild their houses, their huts in this village in the southern coast. And that's where another uh, philosophy comes into play. Um, too many organizations go into a disaster zone or, or any organization doing whatever they're doing and they tell people what they're going to do for them. They have an idea and then sometimes it's the big Americans coming in, this is what we're going to do. But what I found is that you need to ask people what they need. Right. And yeah. And when I went to Samoa to and I asked them what they needed, they had to rebuild their grass huts. It wasn't didn't take that long. But what had happened was the tsunami had destroyed or washed away this village's all the canoes in this village. And they needed to uh, they needed the canoes to fish, they needed the canoes to go across this big bay to the mainland. And uh, so we went into the jungle and we cut down 16 giant trees. With the Samoans. With the Samoans. I don't really know how to make a canoe. Right. Uh, an yeah. outrigger canoe, a Poly right. Polynesian outrigger canoe. But now I do. But they knew. And so I facilitated that effort so that uh, we built 16 canoes, one for each family that needed one that had lost a canoe in the tsunami. And that's what they needed and that's what microwave does. We're flexible in that way. Usually this village makes like one canoe every couple of years. Right. Um, so we had like canoe uh, factory. This, this village became a canoe factory. And this is going to go back to what Alan, you said before, asked before about how this has a multiplier factor, how it helps the community. Well, one, the, the project helped the community because all the families then had a canoe. But the older members of the community were able to teach the younger members of the community how to dig the outrigger canoes and um, it was like canoe college we were making 16 canoes it took uh, two months and from cutting the tree in the jungle to doing some of the partial cutting of the canoe in the jungle because they're so heavy and then dragging the canoes out down to the village the younger people uh, learned the process and after I left this village became known in Samoa as the canoe-making village, My and they God. got hired by other wow, villages you go. to there make you go. canoes. And you don't always know what's going to happen as a result of your efforts, that's, I bet. That's right. And I so my, micro-aid may evolve into, I mean, you started by making, helping one house at a time, 
but it, and now and but you did canoe, so it could evolve depending on what people need. Yeah, I'm mo- mostly focusing on housing for the most part, and that's what we have done. I mean, I'm happy to replace tools of livelihood when I can do it and if that's what they need. Right. M- mainly, though, we've been doing housing. Right. And uh, I do one or two or three or four, up to five. I did five houses once at the same time in the Philippines. But I'm only really limited by my personal capacity and by my fundraising. Right. <laughs> if I, uh, one of my donors said, John, you know, when are you going to scale up? When are you going to start, you know, building more houses? And I said, when you give me more, more money. More money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Simple. <laughs> so, what I'm curious about too is that you 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 find a place that needs help. You 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 identify it, but then you must, of course, feel that and understand that there's so many other places that need that help and go. picking one eliminates the other choice. How do you pick it? How yeah. do you, how does that work? Well, as Alan said earlier, um, one of, uh, a philosopher that I have quoted in my um, literature, on my microid stuff, is Sidney Smith. And he says, just because you can't help everyone doesn't mean you shouldn't help someone. Oh yeah, that's like the star of star, uh, sea star uh, story. Yeah, what's that? Oh, the sea star. Oh, it's wonderful. Okay. There's um, all these sea stars have been washed up on the beach, and there's this kid out there, you know, picking, and they can't. It's just too many. They can't get back to the to the water. So there's this little boy picking up the sea stars, and pitching them back into the water, one at a time. And this other kid comes along and says, why are you wasting your time? You can't get them all back in the water. It, it won't matter. And he picks up a sea star. It matters to this sea star. Mm, and he pitches story. it back, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because there's another quote similar to that, to that story um, that um, I read recently, and I'm going to incorporate it in Microaid's uh, philosophy, which is um, we, Microaid, might not be changing the world, but for the families that we help and put back into a permanent house that will last for generations to come, we are changing their world. Right, right. And, you know, I also uh, equated to the same thing. I ask people, they say, oh, well, again, you're throwing one starfish back. And I ask them, well, do you vote? You think your one vote counts? And they go, yeah, I vote. Well, that's what we're doing. We're building one house at a time, and right. that will uh, contribute to the larger good. Right. And people get motivated to do the same and hopefully. You're, but you're, you're working within uh, already preset structures like governments, uh, economies that are already there, people that already have uh, certain power, um, you know, that they own certain things and they own the place. And you have to work through all that social mess that's going on there. You, yet you say you're independent. I mean, that must present a problem working through the local, the community structures, the government structures. Maybe even the military structures. I don't know. I mean, do they welcome you? Well, two things. One, the great thing about microaid is that we are micro, and I'm the micro part. <laughs> and so when I go into a place, I make, I try to make as little uh, imprint? impact, imprint yeah. of my existence as possible. Because the minute you do alert a local government, especially a small third world kind of government, you're inviting trouble. And the, not trouble exactly, but kind of, you know, maybe payoffs, maybe uh, something like that. They might expect that from you? They might. And um, so I I try to stay under the radar. I tell the families that I'm working with, 
uh, if people ask you how this is being happening, just tell them some rich relative <laughs> sent you money from abroad, or you know, we try to get around that. Although in Nepal and other places where we have had to permit and submit plans to the to the municipalities, we do we follow all the the, the regulations. Um, but there are a lot of places you don't have to do that, and and when we don't have to do that, we don't. But are you approached by politicians saying, you know? I think you should build a house over there because maybe they own the land or something. Or I haven't been. I, I really think. Is it a worry? The good news. I'm not worried about it, but I think the good news is that we're just way too small. Um, when I was in Nepal uh, the first time, uh, starting a project there after a couple of years after their big earthquake in 2015 destroyed 650,000 homes. I went to many meetings. Uh, with the National Reconstruction Administration, which was formed after the earthquakes to administer the billions of dollars that supposedly flowed into the country. But I don't think they were really administering it. I think they were just trying to figure out ways to siphon it off. And I was in these meetings with the other big boys, World Vision, USAID, UKAID, and I'm in the back, and there were like maybe 50 people in these meetings. and. I remember specifically, this is two years after the event, the Nepalese government was not allowing any NGO to build houses. And the, and the head of the uh, UK AID stood up and said, when will you let us do what we're here to do? We, we are ready to go. And the Nepalese head of the administration said, we're still assessing who is eligible for aid. And the USAID guy just went crazy, I mean, the UKAID guy, he went crazy. He's like, we know who's, who's eligible for aid. The people sitting in the rubble of their homes. We yeah. know, we'll just go, we, we know. And these guys are just so good at stonewalling. And, and wow. they just were like, no, 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 we'll just, you know, just hang on. Just, we're still doing it. Please. That's amazing. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. It's like the holding on to power. Mm. Is, you do yeah. that by saying no. Yeah, and holding on Children to money. And holding, on, and holding on to money. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so. So, you oh, know, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, uh, yeah. So, what I did is I, you know, I didn't tell the government I was there. I didn't register as an NGO. I just went. You didn't ask for permission. Yeah, I didn't ask for permission. I just found a family that needed help, and I helped them. And I now continue to help them because I hired a local person, my my interpreter assistant from my first project, as now she's my full-time project manager in Nepal, which is helping her too and her family. And she keeps she's been rolling projects quietly, um, building and new houses and repairing damaged ones. Wow! So when your board says, wow. you know, when 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 are you going to be kind of getting larger and and more important? Maybe that's not the it's, point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right, and I've had many people. My board is very, uh, they know what, what I personally am about, and they know what microwaves about, but I've had some donors say, John, when are you gonna scale up? Scale up, there and you I, go. I hate the word, and, and I just have, don't really have the heart to tell them, I'm not really interested in scaling yeah, up. Right, you can do get more done in a way. Uh, yes, Absolutely. I can get more done. You are listening to Bar Crow Radio, episode number 36. We are talking with the founder and executive director and chief bottle washer of MicroAid International, an organization that helps the survivors of really bad disasters get back on their feet years after the big NGOs and government agencies have left. So, John, we want to learn a little bit more about you. So you've had a very multifaceted life, we see. We know another podcaster, David Nevinsky, whose program, Portfolio Career Podcast, talks to people like you, who have led many work lives. That's Another, what we're saying. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's a podcast about 
people about you don't have to do one thing in your life. That's kind of and the you new seem wave. To be an example of that. Mm. Is that the new wave? I didn't know. That's what. Yeah. That's what David believes. Oh, the portfolio believes. career. Oh, yeah. portfolio yeah. career. I'm a glad. Lot of, I, I'm, a lot of consulting work, I think. Good. I'm glad there's a name for it. I never knew what to call myself except itinerant. <laughs> there you go. Uh, a jack of all trades. A vagabond. Um, but you grew up in California. I grew up in New York City. Oh, New York on City. 79th Street and York Avenue, oh. where I moved. I recently moved back. I wrote that line guessing. Oh, why did you guess? Because I, I eat a lot of guacamole, and I've been in the sun a lot. You are a Californian surf. at heart. It seems yeah. California to me. Yeah, okay. I spent 32 years in California. Uh, ah, okay. After, just a, a couple of years after college, I moved out there, and then I recently moved back. So, okay. yeah, I love California, and I love New York, too. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. I, and you can. You can love you both can. of them. They, t- they told me it, I couldn't, but I yeah, did anyway. No. Yeah. yeah, well, I fell in love with the California girls. Uh, well, and... All right. I, well... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm a Texan. You're a Texan too, right? Wow, uh, three coasts. Right. Right. And, and, uh, I was going to say some of the, the most beautiful women are from Texas. That's what, I, that's what you've always told I've always, me, dear. I've always said that. So, John, at college you studied a bunch of subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were interested in a bunch of stuff. Anthropology, urban studies. I think you got your degree in urban studies. Uh, architecture, science, religion, art. Um, and then, of course, you ended up on Wall Street. <laughs> Of course, right, and, and that's that. That actually is is an indication of that I actually was born and raised in New York, because no matter what your interests are, they tell you the only thing you can do is make a lot of money to be happy, and I bought into that. And no the matter, mercantile city. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so I had that in me for a long time, and certainly out of college, uh, even though I'd studied a variety of things and had mul- many different interests, I ended up on Wall Street. Did you hate it? I didn't hate it because it was so fascinating and it was also the first very, very uh, um, big bull market. It was in 86, 87, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 84, I'm sorry, 84, 85, 86, and 87 is when it all crashed and when right. I, lost, yeah. I lost all my money the first time. The first time. Yeah, but I, I, had a, I found it fascinating because I find a lot of things fascinating, which is why I have a different careers and I studied a lot of different things in college. I thought it was a really interesting place, and um, and I made a bunch of money. And because during a very hot bull market, I used to say this. Now it's it's, it's still true. You can make a mistake, and you can still make money hmm. on Wall Street. And because you're making investments for other people, and they're paying you even, fees. Well, well, that. But if you're in a very hot bull market, it's going in one direction, and it's not that. It's not brain science. None of these guys are really oracles. They just are riding the wave and uh, I rode the wave for a while and uh, then that yeah. it was not fulfilling and, and, and you wrote, wrote it for a while but then you went to Hollywood and you went to yeah, Hollywood the natural Hollywood. move what, from what called you out to Hollywood of course. well I had been doing uh, telecommunication deals on, in, or, or at least doing the research for them I wasn't very high up in, in the Wall Street uh, strata at that point and, but I had been con- contacting a lot of um, Studios, and we did a lot of telecommunication deals that included studios and the studio heads. And I was talking to pretty high-level people in LA. And one of the things I studied in college and love to this day, and I know both of you do too, is movies. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. And yep. I love film yep, noir, yep, yep. and I love the old films, and I studied favorite a film lot noir of stuff. Favorite film noir, very hard to say. Maybe um, a Bresson movie called oh. uh, Pickpocket. I know it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, Bresson. He's Good. Yeah. Son is great. He did more than just film noir, but uh, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, no, the Diary of the Priest. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah with uh, yeah, I like a lot of those French Nouvelle Vague 
uh, directors and uh, and our own, you know, auteurs. Okay, um, let's not go there. Okay, yeah. This is the wrong person. He's <laughs> no, going to no, go no, way no. deep into that. You got okay. a job as creative uh, executor, uh, executive for 20th Century Fox. Right, one of uh, a bunch of us young executives. Uh, we were right under the, the VPs of production, and we all reported to a guy named Scott Rudin, who is a very oh, famous yeah. yeller. No, yes, and, and yes, he is a famous yeller and also a famous producer. He just done a lot of Broadway, and he's yes. got his hand in Wait, why'd you say yeller? Yeller because he screams a lot. That he's wow. he's known people. for his oh. uh, yeah. vitriol. And you, you faced humor. that right in, right right directly. Yeah, oh yeah, he's the one who fired me. It was perfect. Ah, yeah. there you yeah. go. What did you do to get fired? I I was there was a job opening at Paramount uh, for a VP and everybody in town was at my level was looking at it and being Ta- was talking to salivating. Them, salivating and talking to them and so I, I I don't even know if I made a call over the Paramount but you know the, the grapevine in in California in, in Hollywood's very very so he know. found out and he didn't he like out. it no he called my direct boss which was who was a VP at Fox and said oh John's disloyal and and um I was not as diplomatic as I was now, and I, my boss told me that, and I said, well, that's ridiculous. I'm here, you know, of course I'm looking for opportunities to, to move up. And, uh, but my, it wasn't very discreet, and it wasn't diplomatic. It, I, I was such a young, I had an ego. Such a young shit. So I called Scott. I picked up the phone. I called the president of production's office, and I said, hey, Scott, I'm a loyal guy. If you have a problem with me, you should talk to me. The, the phone went dead, and <laughs> like two seconds later, security called me and said, you're off the lot. Oh, uh, my gosh. Collect your stuff and hit the road. Oh, my I was gosh. Like, you thought that was the wrong thing to I say. I guess it was. No. But why no. would it be? That seems so, you know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do we, do we want another one? Uh, I'm, I'm good. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I'm good. I think we're good. Thank, Thank you, you very much. So uh, it was, um, but you know, everything that happens in life, and I'm going to tell you the story about, you know, these multiple careers. What did you call the term? What's the term? Portfolio for it? Portfolio careers. Portfolio careers. I was at school when I was in college, at, up, Upper New York, in Upper Manhattan. Upper Manhattan. <laughs> I went to school up there. As far as I'm concerned, that's Upper New York. Yeah, Upper New York. Yeah, anything above 96th Street. I didn't even know this place existed. Yeah. After that, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I think it's all Westchester or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Canada. Above 96, Canada. (laughs) So um, a guy came to. We have these cocktail mixers every month at my in my dorms, and we invite alumnus to come and discuss their lives in the dorm. In the dorm, uh, you know, in the in the common room where we had the you know really bad cheese and some really bad wine. Unlike this wine, by the way. Thank you. Sure. Delicious. Um, And this guy was like 80 years old. And he told the story of his life. And it was like, oh, I did this for 15 years, and I did this for 20 years, and I did this for 20 years, and I did this for 12 years. I was like, that's amazing. You, because when you're in college, you think you're making a decision for a lifetime. Right. And it's really a shame that kids feel that way. And I did, but I listened to that guy, and, I, and in my and life... And you always remembered it. And I always remembered it. And, right. and so anytime I felt like I wanted to make a change, I did it. But usually it was because I got fired. So those terrible situations, you think they're really terrible at the time, but they, they're so they great. They open up opportunities. Right. Well, you it's look true. back and you say, if that didn't happen, another I, door. I, I'd, be some, you know, I'd be some studio executive. Probably yelling at everybody. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no question. So you learned the basics of filmmaking at New World Pictures, yeah? 
Oh my God, you guys, what are you, CIA? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, yeah, we, we, have our, we have our connections. Serious. So when yeah, I got right. fired from Fox, this is kind of a funny story, um, I think. <laughs> I hope your listeners think so too. Um, I went, I was, so New World Pictures uh, was Roger Corman's studio. And Roger uh-huh. Corman. I want to hear about Roger Corman. Oh my God, King of the Bees, uh, as you know, he bought, yeah. he, he, I think they were public domain, Edgar Allan Poe stories, and he famously made a lot of those with... Those horror films. Yeah, with uh, Vincent, Vincent Price. Price. Yeah. Um, he had bought a old um, lumber yard in Venice, near where I lived, because when I moved to Venice, it was still artist and, and sort of nice. commercial. Yeah, it was super cool. And he had his studio there, and they made two movies a month. They cranked them out. They built. They had this one. Stu- like the old studio system. Like the old studio system. Yeah. He had a studio system. He had yeah. His, he had yeah. his crews. He had his art departments. Two he had movies everything. a month. That's amazing. Yeah. We're trying to crank out four uh, podcasts Podcast a month, a month and yeah. it's killing us. Right. Well, he, had, he. They would build this street. You know, they had one street that was like the set. So if it was a western, they would right. literally. Well, we're gonna shoot all our western scripts. I, until this set is is destroyed, and they would do that, and then they'd build something else, like a city, like a New York street, and right. they'd shoot all their scripts. It was a genre. Was a, yeah, that was it. That's great. So I, I walked into the studio. I got fired from Fox. I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to try to pitch some, become an independent producer. So pitch stuff. But I really wanted to learn how to make movies. I, right. I really wanted to learn that. Um, so I walked into the studio. And I said, who's the studio manager? And the guy who was sitting wherever I was said, I'm, I'm that guy. I said, oh, I, I want to work here. I, I want a job. And the guy said, well, well what can you do? What's, what, what's your experience? I said, well, and I'm, you know, I, I polished my nails on my chest. And I said, um, oh, well, I went to an Ivy League school. I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years. And I just had a stint at 20th Century Fox as a creative executive deciding on what movies we were going to make. And he said, okay, so you have no skills. <laughs> That's but funny. I'm going to hire you anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing I want you to do is get me a cup of coffee. <laughs> I love that. So, oh, my God. And if you do that right, yeah, yeah. It was you do a, the next step. Yeah, it was a step-by-step process. I, knew, I think I did that wrong, by the way, because I never had to do that. And it was such a great learning experience going working at Corman for a year or more uh, I did everything. I, d- I worked as a PA. I got coffee. I worked in the art department. I worked in the grip department. I worked in the electric department. I worked in the camera department. I built the sets. So That must have been so much fun. Were you ever on camera? It, no. I, I don't think so. Maybe as a, as a zombie expert, one. Zombie. So, yeah, they, <laughs> I've always wanted to They needed zombie. some zombies. Well, it's too tell, bad. Uh, Corbin's real quick. I, yeah. what, tell us about Corman, just real quick. Was he a good guy? Was he a... Uh, Taskmaster was he? Was he a Scott Rudin? Weird. Well, who was it? Well, I wish I could help you out there. I never met him. Uh, I, worked, oh, okay. I worked at the studio, but uh, okay. I was. He didn't make a lot of appearances. New World had gotten pretty big by that time, and they were pretty much working on their uh, their library. And I think he was off doing that. Okay. We were just making schlocky horror movies. Yeah, putting out two. You said two a month. Two a month. Yeah. Jesus. So then you became a freelance TV advertisement producer for 15 years. Right. Where, we want to know, have you done any filming um, on your of your micro-aid projects? I haven't, and, a, and I like to say, but it's not exactly true, but I, I, facetiously I'll say, I say it. Um, it's very hard to hold a camera and a hammer at the right, same right, time. Right. So until I get a little bigger, there are people who have offered to come 
uh, documentary filmmakers and right. stuff to right. shoot uh, what I do, but I don't really have any money to pay them yet. Right. So, new idea. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Let's talk about the people you work with and the families you help. Can you tell us some stories? How long do you stay with the family? I mean, what's it like? All right, I'll tell you a couple of good stories. Okay. Um, oh, that's how I live. Yeah. Um, I hope they're good. I hope this is. Something. Sure, you don't want another so, glass of wine? Positive. You think it'll help my stories? No, I no. think it would. <laughs> no. No, 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 you're doing good. You're doing really well. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I know you're interviewing me, but I feel like I'm talking too much. I never talk this much about my. So. No, keep talking. No, keep talking. Okay. This is don't good. Worry, don't worry about it. That's what we do. I know. This, this I guess. is the John Ross story. So you can this tell. is great. I, I'm, I don't get this opportunity very often. So um, when I choose a family uh, and I do a project, another microwave philosophy, I don't leave the, the field, as, as it's called, the field. Uh, I don't leave the site until the project's done, until I hand the keys to the family and I watch them flip on the lights. Wow. And because I saw, yeah, I, when I started this, I saw that too many organizations leave. They don't see it through and, and, and often it doesn't get finished and it, it's really just, um, there's lots of things I could criticize about other Nonprofit and disaster recovery organizations. I won't because they're really trying to do something good. I mean, I, let's criticize, you know, Purdue Pharma, like, you know, before I'll criticize, like, some other organization that's trying to do something good. But they often don't complete the job. And so I said, well, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to complete the job. So when I choose a family, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm there all the time, they're there all the time, I'm there every day overseeing the, the construction, overseeing the crew, overseeing the purchasing of materials, and I'm interacting with the family. And I'm usually a, a, an object of, of, of curiosity. Uh, I don't speak the language generally in Samoa, I don't speak the language in Nepal, I don't speak the language. Spanish, I like to say, I know just enough Spanish to make myself misunderstood. So, but I have an interpreter usually, but the kids think I'm a novelty and they're always around me and I always think that I know that I've been accepted by the family and really have integrated when they ignore me. I show up after a few weeks oh, every day, they don't again. even, they don't even basically barely say hello. Wow. I'm just one of the family. Yeah. If they're serving tea or something, they bring it to me, but I'm, I, I've been accepted. Um, one thing that happened in Samoa uh, was the most sort of difficult physical place that I've been because I even sometimes I stay in cinder block houses sometimes I stay in very nice inns sometimes I stay in people's homes depends where I am and what I'm doing but in Samoa I was living in the village and I had a little hut to myself but I wasn't cooking my own food and I'm a vegan so in Samoa they eat chicken and fish that they kill or catch that day right and they also eat taro root and it's taro roots like um, a combination of, between a potato and an artichoke heart. It's like delicious. And they cook it in coconut cream. It's fabulous. But I was eating that like two meals a day for six weeks. Because you didn't want to eat the, the fish. I wouldn't eat the, the fish or the chicken because the I'm chicken. a vegan. So yeah. they would, and they'd say, why are you, you know, the people sort of speaking, maybe I'm doing this wrong, but they would say, why are you no eat Samoan food, chicken, fish? Uh, real Samoan food I, and I finally I, di- I didn't want to insult them but I just said it's my religion and perfect yeah. that yeah. answer right. Right. Yeah. so I would go to this this one family I was eating my meals at their hut and their and you can get all of your your nutrients 
with the taro root and the... Well, I bring, if I, I knew, I had been to Samoa before to do the assessment. I knew I was going to have a problem finding food to eat. Right. Where I didn't in Peru and I didn't in, in Nepal. And there was nothing, no problem getting anything I wanted, vegetables and rice and lentils and dal in, in Nepal. But in Samoa, it was going to be a problem. So I knew to bring jars of peanut butter and um, vitamins and some other sort of snacky things that would keep me alive. Right. Um, so, but I would go into this family's hut every day, twice a day to eat, and they were, they'd cook over a, in a pot something, and it was always boiled taro root and coconut cream for me. And I was happy with that, I'm pretty easy going, but uh, they were concerned. And after a few weeks, four, five, or six weeks, they were like, John, we're really concerned. All you're eating is boiled taro root and yeah. coconut cream. We're really concerned about you. I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. One night after about six weeks, I show up at their hut for food, and they said, oh, John, we made you something special. We're really worried about your eating boiled taro root every day in coconut cream. And so we, we no more of that. We're, we changed it up. We, got, we did something really special for you. I'm like, oh. I said, you really didn't have to do this. I'm, I hope you didn't go out of your way. Nope, no more boiled taro root for you. It's something special. I'm like, okay, well, what is it? <laughs> and they were like, baked taro root. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is this something new they kind of created just for you? No, they do that. They put, they, they yeah. can, they put the, the taro root just directly into the coals and they yeah. bake it. And they had the coconut cream on the side in a bowl. So I could dip it. Right, but they were respecting you. Oh, they were like, so nice. they, were, they were doing they were, something yeah, special, yeah. special they for you. A little something different. They yeah, were, that's sweet. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you: when you come in, the people that you're um, that you meet, I mean, there's a whole thing of like being accepted, and you kind of talked about that a little bit. But they're and, and you described them: they're overwhelmed, they're exhausted, they've been living in this you know hut for for so long, and you're coming in. Uh, I know it's great that eventually you're you're accepted and all. But that initial contact, um, it's like, how do you do that? How do you say, hi, I'm here to help you? Well, normally I don't just, I don't say that right off the bat because I don't want to get anyone's expectations up. Yeah. And so usually I'll show up with my interpreter and, and somehow have gotten to these people through my network of other NGOs who are leaving, the, the, the relief people, they're leaving. So now I call them and they say, these families need houses. And it's usually a list of like a thousand. Wow. So I've done my research in the U.S., narrowing it down to like 12 that I'm going to go visit personally and see if I can help them, see uh, the budget for the, the thing, see where I'm going to live, see what I'm going to eat, see what I can do. it. And I usually have an interpreter at that point so I show up and I usually say I'm just doing research on what happened during the disaster just an American doing research and so I and they I, accept that yeah they yeah they do and they I, say, I ask them some basic questions you know do, where's your house what happened to it what was it like in the earthquake what, what did you have before it's usually a very it's a, I get it in there and that's what I want to know what did they have before and what would be their dream? I don't even say their dream scenario if they could. So I just say I'm doing research. And then I ultimately make a decision. It's the next visit that's really kind of crazy, which is I'm with my interpreter. I show up again at the, the beneficiary's house that I've decided we're going to help them. And I say, okay, I'm going to rebuild your house. Queen for a day. Yeah. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah, it's, and how do they react when... 
Well, they don't believe it, first of all. Nobody believes it. Well, why would they? <laughs> why would they? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and that doesn't sink in until a couple of days. And they're like, well, okay, yeah. They've even either heard it before from other NGOs or they've just never even thought that would be a reality. And so either way, they're completely incredulous. They don't believe it. And I say, well, uh, and we talk about how we're going to do it. You know, ask them if they know a contractor that they, or a builder that they trust. And I use, I do the general contracting. Um, but I ask them if they know people they would like and trust to use to build a house and, and if they do they, we meet with them the next day and sometimes I've already sussed that out in case they don't have someone and, and you um, can recommend someone yeah and so often they'll say oh yeah okay thanks you know are you really going to help us and they don't really believe it. and I say yeah well we're starting tomorrow at 7 wow. so oh, wow. get ready you know, wow. and I, I say something like clear that rubble tonight <laughs> because we need that space and we show up the next day and materials start showing up and crews start showing up and you know a foundation is dug and then a foundation is built and they then go, hmm, they're maybe like he is yeah they, maybe this is really happening wow. and then yeah so and and that takes a while to sink in and, so you stay in these places and you for a while the, as the um, general contractor. general contractor and then eventually it, the project ends and you see them turn the lights on do you stay in touch with them oh yeah I mean two things need to happen for this nonprofit for for the organization one I need to keep in touch and, and make sure that the asset as they say is being used correctly and they're not and how they're doing for my donors and right. for my board they want to know so we have a, a system in place for staying in touch. But it's not elaborate. These, this day and age, even the most remote areas, when we were in the jungle in Samoa, I got full bars on my cell phone. Wow. wow. Because in Samoa, in the, there's a big mountain, the volcano, uh -huh. and there's a tower on the top, tower. Of top of it. the volcano. <laughs> so you can be in the jungle in this really remote place, and you're like, I've got full bars. And, and they all have cell phones. They don't have any credit. They can't call because they don't have any money on their phones. But, but they, they can receive. They can receive. They can receive. So, okay. yeah. So, we, so I, I am in touch with them. This must feel amazingly wonderful. But you've been doing so much, maybe it's become normal for you. It's a very good... That's interesting you said that. It kind of has. I... I was on a real high when I came back from my first project. One, because I just couldn't believe that I did it. You know, I really, I, I was worried that I was, did it, could do it in a foreign country, and I got really sick in Sri, Sri Lanka. Um, and this is the canoe project. No, that this is the first Sri houses that Trump I built. Houses. Yeah, Samoa was the canoes, and um, I had raised a bunch of money in the United States, and I just at one point, the, the my resources for raising money had dried up and I had hit up everyone I knew and I just had a certain amount of money and I just said okay I'm going to Sri Lanka I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna go and do this project and and I'm and so I ran out of money during this project and I was like well I am NOT going to fail at this I'm starting this nonprofit this is what I want to do for the rest of my life or at least for the next 20 years and I'm not gonna fail and I was like literally t you know going to the capital going to an ATM machine and taking money out of my own account and until I finished the house with ATM money um, so it was uh, it was right, but now fun. but now you wow. have now you have money coming in I wanted to talk well, about one person <laughs> 
Well, well <laughs> I don't know. But you're not using entirely your own money. I don't use my own money anymore. Right. Thank and I know but you I, would. I would. And I know you don't take a salary. Maybe we can get to that right. too. But before we do that, <laughs> um, one of the people you mentioned several times in your literature is, is a man that we both know, uh, Les Winter. Mm. A great lawn bowler. And a, a great lawn bowler, great friend. We, we know Les and Gene and the sons and, and, and grandchildren. Uh, we've known him for quite a while. You've known him quite a while. Yeah. Is, is Les an important figure in, in MicroAid? Les is a critical figure in MicroAid. He helped me start it. He supported me. Emo- everything emotionally financially to get he's talked to, to, to us about you yeah. years ago yeah well Les was uh, the executive director of the Achilles Track Club in right. New York in right. the 80s and you were a director of Achilles Track Club out in uh, California I I founded the organization out there it was nascent when I joined it in yeah. New York yeah. uh, the head of it and I are pretty good friends and I was a very dedicated volunteer it seems to be my <laughs> Thing, to become dedicated to things and when I moved to California the head of the New York organization asked me to start an LA chapter which yeah. I did and which I ran for 20 years and we became the second wait largest. a minute wait a minute yeah. how old are you <laughs> he's 107 I think I'm, so I'm 58 I think. maybe 57 I'm you gonna have, be 58 you've lived a lot of lives I'm so, so I'm sorry to interrupt so, no, you it's because that brings up something very important which is I am so I feel so lucky to have had so many interesting experiences in life. Right. I, I've, done, I've had the opportunities to do so many interesting things and, and fate has you know, direct, directed me to certain things that are just amazing. I, I, look, at my, I look at my past and, and I'm amazed sometimes too. I'm you know, just happy. If our listeners want to donate to uh, MicroAid International, just go to the website. Yeah, please. Uh, you can go to microaidinternational.org. It's uh, the whole thing, microaidinternational.org. And you can check out all the pictures and my blog and everything about my work. And then there's a drop down, or there are buttons all over the place donate. I have one on my forehead. <laughs> I noticed that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah it's very attractive. So, uh, it's in script. Do what you got to do. It works so. for the whole outfit. Yeah. yeah. So we've been talking with John Ross, the founder and executive director and project manager and worker in the field for MicroAid International. Thank you, John, for sharing with us as the part of your amazing story. Thank you for having me. It was great having you. We're Barcrawl Radio recording at now at Vino Laventino. It's a lovely wine bar and Mediterranean restaurant on West 94th Street, just west of Broadway. Uh, check it out when you're in the neighborhood. Ask for the owner, Chaim. Chaim is here. I'm waving at him right now. Uh, he's a really good guy, very friendly guy. He'll recommend a good wine for you. And let him know that you heard about his place on Bar Crawl Radio. Yeah, I don't think you've had a bad wine here, right? I mean, every time no. you drink no, wine here, you talk excellent. about how great it is. Yeah, I, I had a really wonderful Malbec the other day. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. So email us at barcrawlradio at gmail.com and tell us about your favorite bar next time we may see you there and have a great conversation there we go all right baby i that's think a wrap. that's a wrap here we go whoa thank you <laughs>